Hi, I'm Cam. And I'm Fiona. And you're listening to the Over the Fence podcast by Farmers for Climate Action. Today, we're talking to Gabby Chan. Gabby's a farmer, journalist, and author. Her most recent book was called Rusted Off, where she wrote about regional voters moving away from the major parties and the reasons for this change. Gabby's now working on another book about food and agriculture in Australia. We chatted with Gabby about life on the farm, politics, and how climate change is impacting the food sector. As always, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can get in touch with us via email at info at farmersforclimateaction.org.au or over social media. Here's our interview with Gabby. Gabby, tell us how you ended up on the farm. I fell in love with a farmer, something I never expected to do. I'd never met a farmer and so I don't quite know how it happened. It just was one of those kind of serendipitous moments that I met him through a friend of a friend and, um, you know, sparks flew. When I told my mother, she said, oh, I thought you'd marry a New York art dealer. And And when I told my father, he said, oh, a Pitt Street farmer. And I said, no, a real farmer. And when I told my Chinese grandmother, well, dad told my Chinese grandmother and she said, can't she do better than that? Because the Chinese view of farming is completely different to the Western view of farming, I guess. Although maybe some of them are, some of it is crossing over these days. How long were you together before you came and had a look at the farm for the first time? Um, Probably a year. Do you remember what your thoughts were? The landscape uh, we, I drove in at night and the landscape was the first thing that hits me because as you come down the driveway, there's this line of black trunked ironbarks, which were just so fabulous. But then the house was kind of this mix of old world and the scale of the house and the scale of the landscape was the thing that really kind of whacked me in the head. Just the height, things like the height of the ceilings and the and the personal space, the the open space coming from a terrace. My terrace in Surrey Hills was three point three meters wide, and had two tiny, tiny, well, one and a half bedrooms. So it was just that feeling of coming into inland Australia and and getting your head around the space because I had no experience of it. Uh, and it really kind of struck me at how different it felt emotionally and personally. What were your first impressions of the local community coming from such an urban environment? Oh, you know, like another country. It was it was like visiting a different country. And I guess it is really. Everyone stared at me. <laughs> um, and... You know, that was just because I was a new person from out of town they hadn't seen me before. It felt like New Zealand. I'd been to New Zealand before. And New Zealand has that kind of slower pace. And so it felt like that. I really noticed the lack of faces that looked like mine in, t- in terms of kind of uh, multicultural mix. How has the way you see the farm and the local community changed over the years since then? I, I feel a sense of possession now over it not in the farm in terms of a financial sense but in terms of a landscape sense I feel 
like I have a mind map of the farm and where things particularly happened relating to the kids growing up or, you know, the favourite picnic spot or a particular curve of the land that I like. And in terms of the community, it was it, it's also a sense of belonging, which I never had in the city, which is kind of weird because I grew up in the city, but I never felt connected to a particular place or even a particular house. You know, we had been raised to be global citizens, that we could go anywhere, work anywhere in the world. We would fit right in like, you know, a hand in a glove, but with no connection to a place. And so I've now been here for more than half of my life. And that has kind of laid down a, a personal belonging, I guess. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Gabby, you have kids. Do you mm. expect them to come back to the farm or have that same sense of place in their lives? I think they'll have the sense of place. I don't, if I'm honest, I don't really expect them to come back to the farm. And that's that uh, has changed for me. So originally, when I came out of a very city mindset, I've, I felt like, oh, you know, I wouldn't want the kids to grow up on a farm because, you know, it might be limiting or they need to see other options. And really it's a hard, it's a pretty hard life in some respects. And so why would you want to, um, your kids to do that? But now I think it's more, they're not going to come back. And that it doesn't make me sad in that I want them to follow whatever it is they want to follow. But there's definitely an emotional connection to land and landscape that would be sad to lose. And it would be sad to lose in terms of where they connect back to, the fact that they would never come back. And, and I mean, that's the thing that I think that really started to change for me through the Mabo debates when there was a lot of angst around here and in rural communities generally about, you know, the fact that Indigenous people had these long-standing connections to country uh, and and people were kind of saying, or a section of people were saying, oh, well, you know, they're going to steal the farms and steal the land and all this sort of stuff. Without understanding that connection to country when people had often been here for multi-generations and I could never understand that sort of disconnect between the idea of a, you know, we always talk about farming families as multi-generational my husband's always saying, you never hear about single generational farms, do you? Always hear about multi-generational. But that basically says that, you know, we respect people who have been on land for, for a while. And yet in terms of Indigenous connection, it's nothing. It's such a short, short time in the scope of history. And so I guess with the kids, you know, they will have grown up here and maybe if the farm passes on to uh, another family or another company, then that's it. And since you've been on the farm, have you noticed the climate change? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I um, when I first came, like, I'm sceptical, I know I'm sceptical. And, you know, that's partly bred by journalism. And maybe I was sceptical to begin with. But I noticed the the changes in the seasons. Once I got my iron, like for 
probably the first five years I was just so focused on little kids and and politics and everything else that I wasn't really taking much notice of what was happening and then it started to change I guess for me coming into the noughties and coming into that noughties drought and there was still a lot of talk uh, that when we get a normal season I could never remember what a normal season was I had no understanding of what a normal season is and I, and I have to say I'm pretty sure there's not a normal season but I think the goalposts are shifting markedly and so going into that noughties drought you know it was so awful and so tragic to watch the landscape go through what it went through notwithstanding the fact that Australia has had droughts for you know for a long time I just started to notice the change and of course then you know the politics collide with the with the weather in the sense that 2013 I'm back in the press gallery and and we have the carbon tax election and that's when farmers who had started tentatively talking about climate change really just shut up about climate change and it became something you didn't talk about in polite company because it was akin to talking about politics and that's that's really kind of the breakage I guess um, for me between the reality of what we were we were living and and what I was hearing when I was doing my reporting and so I can't extricate that politics from what was happening on the land even though it was as if they were siloed in terms of the way public debate was happening. Have you and your husband changed how you farm or what you farm in response to the changing climate? Yes, yeah, yeah. We've, um, so harvest happens earlier now than it used to. Uh, there's barley going in this time that wasn't going in um, because it's sort of a better fit for that sort of hard finish. So yeah, yeah, that definitely there are there are things that are changing. You know, the stocking rate is lower. I guess we're a lot more gun shy. Even though I don't, I don't think of myself as a farmer. He's the, definitely the farmer, but we have a lot more conversations about what's going to happen this year. And I, I'm always the pessimistic one. He's always the optimistic one, which I guess is probably how it should be. So I was going to ask you actually what your role was with the farm um, yep. generally and day-to-day. -day. Uh, generally and day-to-day, -day, not much at all. Um, I am fully consumed and have been um, for pretty much the whole of my career with writing and politics and journalism. So this, you know, this latest um, project is really interesting because I'm going into much more of the detail around uh, the business, the global climate, not only in terms of climate change, but global business climate for ag. And that's, that's been really interesting. I consider it sort of like his business. It is his business, but I'm a sometimes annoying observer and sounding board. I guess that's the best way you could describe it. Your other job, Gabby, was, before you became an author, working in the press gallery. Do you yep. want to talk a little bit about what that's like? Uh, yeah, so I started, well, I was in the state 
Press Gallery, New South Wales Press Gallery in Macquarie Street for from the early 90s to the Bob Carr election, which was 95. And then I moved, as things got more serious with the farmer, I moved to Canberra with the Oz in 95. And so was there for the, for the first part of my press gallery career until the... Uh, probably 2003 and at that time it was quite different so the Australian has uh, obviously a big footprint uh, in the press gallery and it had many more staff then and so we could concentrate we were assigned rounds basically based on the minister's portfolios and so you could really concentrate on serious policy stories and you would know it back the front and when the policy story came up in your area or you broke a story in that area you would be the person writing on it and the political reporter uh, or political editor would sort of write over the top and and do the broad view whereas the the rounds person would do the real detailed view and uh, it was it was great because it allowed you to really look at uh, policies in detail. You couldn't be snowed about about policy detail because you'd been covering it, you know, often for years, and so you had a really good understanding of the issues in those particular areas. I left in two thousand and three to for the kids, and I stayed here, and then went back in towards the end of of that decade and it, it, things had changed markedly. Number one, the interwebs existed uh, in a really kind of broad sense and so the news cycle had sped up remarkably. remarkably. It meant a kind of concertina effect on the rounds. The news model was being disrupted as we say or broken so there were less people in the bureau. There were many more empty desks and you had to cover a lot more, more areas on the run. Now, I think that changed the way politicians dealt with things. So it used to be that they would, because they knew they, knew they had policy people who actually knew stuff, they had to kind of think about things. They, had, they talked to journalists a lot more in the lead up to policies around how things would work, why it was the best idea. The bureaucrats were more available in their um, expert policy areas. And so you had this change from that to, you know, much more shoveled out on the run. You know, often you get a big policy document drop post, um, when did I go back, 2012-13, you get a, this big policy, massive policy drop on the day with just a kind of press release as you walk into the press conference and you're just scrambling to digest this big document, understand what was happening in it, and then write it up in five seconds flat for the internet. So that kind of breakage in the way that media politics work and the way they interact, I think, has had a negative effect on, on policy development and argument in Australia. And, you know, it's happened all, all around the world. So now there's kind of spin, there's always been spin, but now that kind of spin, the first version of a story can really change the narrative. In climate, like it was obvious that in the noughties, um, 
David Crombie, uh, the head of the National Farmers Federation, was talking about climate change being the big, biggest challenge to, to farming. Suddenly you get a 2013 election and National Farmers Federation basically shuts up about climate, doesn't talk about it much because it, it's, it's really become from that 2011 leadership spill where Turnbull lost his, his leadership of the Liberal Party, it becomes a political equation. It becomes, you know, oh, if you talk about climate change, you must be a Labor voter. And if I'm a Conservative voter and I live in the country, then therefore I can't talk about climate change. It's kind of the weirdest debate <laughs> to me. So just existing in that environment and trying to cut through all of that with actual information has become so much of a bigger challenge. How do you think the decline of local news has impacted rural communities and politics as well? Oh, I think, I think that has, again, made it more, um, more difficult. Local newspapers used to, be, used to be inhabited by journalists that were there for a long time, that understood news, that were properly... Uh, who were properly trained and had had resources invested in them and they would either stay or they would use it as a jump pad to more national media. And both of those types of journalists were kind of well valued in the system and everyone would use the, uh, read the local newspaper. As the resources have been stripped out, you can see it in the coverage. There's some really good local and regional coverage of newspapers and I'll often still kind of trawl through rural regional papers for stories because it's often where you hear about it first but bloody hell they have a hard job I mean low low wages lack of support infrastructure so I worked for a year on our local newspaper the Harden Express um, when the kids were at school because I wanted a job close by and I also wanted to understand the culture of the town, the culture of rural Australia. And I thought that was the best way to do it. And it was, but 20 hours a week to produce eight pages on your own, plus cleaning the toilet. It's a pretty hard environment to exist in for a longer term. And I compare that to what I heard about prior to moving here of the, the previous editor, would have been probably 30 or 40 years ago, who was really, really um, grounded in journalism, had the resources, trained other young journalists. It's like chalk and cheese now. And so really it's the luck of the draw, what you get in your local community. I have seen, um, where was it, Narracourt? Uh, there's a newspaper starting up there from someone who's um, come back from the US and wants to start something. And, you know, you get examples where someone comes into town and sets up a newspaper and some of them are good and some of them are bad. But um, it's really important, I think, to get your facts from newspapers that who have basic journalistic standards. Otherwise, everything comes from Facebook and some of that's good and some of it's crap. Talked a little bit about the local community in your area. What was the response when you um, published Rusted Off? <laughs> I didn't sleep for about a year when I was... <laughs> in the book because I was so terrified of the community response. It's actually been really good. I mean, I don't know, they could be talking behind my back saying what a terrible book it is, but I think generally it was pretty good. I did, I deliberately did the 
the launch of the book locally first uh, and it was an open launch anyone could come and I got really good feedback from there and I've had good feedback since. Do you want to talk a little bit about what themes you covered in Rusted Off and what you discovered? Yeah I'm I really it was a it was kind of written as a primal scream after 20 years of living here and I had always thought from the moment I came down that driveway that I would write something that contrasted the two lives. But I'm glad I didn't write it early on um, because I think it would have been underdone and misunderstood and more shouty. What I wanted to touch on was something that I talked about before, you know, with climate change. That is this kind of uh, I felt my life was astride these two very different worlds contained in this country. And that is the world of the local community and the information or the lack of information. I guess it's best reflected in the expressions about the pub test, you know, where I was talking about it won't pass, pass the pub test. It's what the people on my main street were talking about compared to what politicians in the press gallery were talking about. And they were often completely different things or opposing things. And I noticed, and it really, I think I chart it in the book, Keating first, I, I used this interview w with Keating where a court talkback caller calls into his radio interview and says, you know, this is what's happening here. And he, he basically sort of shouted him down and said, you don't know what you're talking about. Why are you even ringing? It was about the High Court in Marbo, I'm pretty sure. Even though he, that caller didn't know about Marbo and the ins and outs and the, you know, the constitution and all that stuff, he was expressing something that I'd heard around the fear of Marbo. And I think from that point on, I was really had, I was really attuned to the fact of how people felt issues were playing out on their main street and often they would be disregarded by journalists or politicians. They would, they would be sort of wiped off as, you know, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And that happened at the same time as this um, voting change where you had this increase of voting for independence. I did some uni work on independence and, and really found from, I think it was about the 40s on to 96, there were very few federal, if any, federal independents, apart from Bob Catter, who, you know, people who might have jumped ship um, halfway through. But why was it that people were voting for independence? And I think that was about this kind of professionalisation of the political class, this embedding of spin into and talking points into the way politicians spoke to their voters. And I think that combined with the economic dynamic about around economic rationalism and, you know, if you can't get big, get out. And, you know, if, you, if your post office in your little town is too small, then you just close it down. And I think right through the court, Keating government, which was a great government in a lot of senses in terms of reform, there was this disregarding of local communities. And I think in conservative areas like rural um, towns like mine, there was this holding of breath, you know, this, this was, 
this was considered about labor labor it was just labor was evil and when we get a conservative government again it will just go back to what it was 96 happens um, john howard comes in and he totally buys into the same agenda and so people are going you know what what world do these people live in it doesn't relate to the say the import of the local post office in my town or the local bank branch or don't you understand that i you know i do my my banking once a week and i don't want to travel an hour away to another regional town i want to do it here and and what that message said that economic rationalist message said was you don't count if you are in a small place once that people got that message and you get independence standing starting to stand again in elections and starting to get profile again in elections then you have somewhere to put your vote that is either a positive action around maybe some of the policies that the independent is espousing or a negative action which is basically up yours to the major parties and um, I'm just going to vote for this person because I want you to understand that I don't like the way you're dealing with me. So the Nationals are the main party that represent regional Australia. How do you think they've navigated this shift towards globalisation and economic rationalism? And what do you think they need to do going forward to make sure they still represent regional communities? Well, I think the, the, the Nationals are, are an interesting beast in that they've always had in rural areas in wh where they stand, and that's mostly the eastern states. We have no Nats coming from, um, federally coming from Western Australia. They've always done the local politics well in a strategic sense, because if you think about it, in rural seats, the culture of the National Party, which is now 100 years old, began uh, as, a, as a culture of farmers who wanted to have their say in parliaments. And so they built this branch structure right through regional areas. And that branch structure said to people in those towns, if you want an influence on power and politics, then you've got to join the National Party because, you know, we are the party of the bush. We are the party of country Australia. And so you get this kind of cultural growth happening around that party structure and around the branches. And so you get multi-generational members happening in the National Party. And, you know, it's on the, as, as a friend said to me, who, who grew up in rural Queensland, it's on the mantelpiece, you know, with the, weirdly, with the ABC and, um, and, and all of those things that rural Australia relied on. With globalisation, I think there occurred with the Nats and there was this kind of rush to um, export, you know, the opportunities for export, the opportunities for big ag, while con continuing on with the rhetoric in those um, in in local towns of you know we are we are your party we are the party of the the battler the city will never understand you those latte sippers in the city they don't get it 
Uh, they don't get what you're up against. So they ha you have this kind of dual conversation happening where, you know, they're championing, championing big business, big ag, and yet talking the talk of the, of the little guys and girls on the street. And I think that that sort of uh, bifurcation is happening to this day. Ron Boswell, who was a former national senator, and in his farewell speech, he quoted Menzies uh, along the lines of, you know, it's not a free go, it's about a fair go. And I think that was a, a very specific reference to the fact that the market doesn't solve everything. And particularly for small places and small towns and small businesses, who they say are their raison d'etre, the market doesn't solve everything. I mean, you've just got to look at the supermarket duopoly in Australia, or even the big four. Markets assume that there is perfect information, and that just isn't the case. You've just got to look at the water market. Why, why are all these big companies and why are overseas pension funds increasingly looking at our water market? Because big operators have a lot of access to information. For a little guy who's trying to do everything and maybe has one employee or two employees, it, you just can't get across what you have to do in a day. And I think that the Nats need to really think about who they are there for. They need to think about what is their stance going to be on land use debates, particularly between mining and farming. Who are they there for? I don't know who they're there for at the moment. I see glimpses of it. If I, was, if I was writing a strategy for a country party, I would have been first out of the blocks on climate change, for example. Farmers are affected so much and all of the global debate around farming is talking about climate change. It's talking about what we want from land use. Look at the UK for those conservative electorates that voted for Brexit, they're now having the conversation. What do we want from our, our food producers? What do we want from our landscapes? And how are we going to protect them in a way that almost fuses environment and food production? I never hear any of that from the Nats. I don't know if they're thinking about it. I hope they are. I really hope they are. Because I'm not... A lot of people in the press gallery will say, I oh, don't, you know... We don't need a country party. I think we do need a country party. I think we need country independence. I, I think we need as much diversity in country representation as we can possibly get. But I want them to, thinking about policy issues, deep policy issues that affect their voters and not just who the latest lobbyist is who's come through their door. We spoke with Judy Brewer on the last podcast and she said that when she joined the Nats in the 80s, they had, you know, 100,000 members across the country and now their branches have less than 1,000 members. If our farmers want to see a better politics and get better representation in regional Australia, what do you think they need to do and how can we change the way rural Australians are represented politically? Everyone needs to engage. Rural populations, we're, we're a minority in, in the Australian political landscape. And so it calls, it almost calls a greater proportion of engagement required from rural areas in politics. And whether you 
join the National Party or whether you get behind an independent or whichever party you choose to engage with. I mean, we haven't talked about Labor yet. Labor was born in the book and they have largely ceded the territory, um, completely, pretty much completely ceded the territory. Get engaged in whichever political force floats your boat, but get engaged and know the policies of that party. Because if you're voting, and so much of our voting, like everyone does it, is comes from the gut, comes from a family culture, comes from a feeling. Um, people don't vote largely on rational grounds. When things get too complicated, they, de they default to their gut instinct. Try and overcome that. Try and look at the policies the party you're supporting is putting forward and see if it matches what you're seeing on the ground. See if it matches your experience in your children's school or your experience in the local hospital or your, you know, your experience of, of your climate and what it's doing. Your experience of trying to deal with the government on drought, for example. Drought policy. There's another policy that has just gone, you know, missing completely. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of exceptional circumstances policy, but since 2013, pretty much we haven't had a drought policy. How can any party that represents the country preside over that? All of these things uh, require policy responses, and I don't see that many of them. The newest thing that I see and is kind of a green shoot, I think, is around the debate on uh, environmental and eco-services policy, which could have a big bearing on, on farmers. And I know David Littleproud's put $30 million into a, uh, into a pilot program there. And I suspect there's a bit of work being done there, but there's another one right for the picking. The UK is already talking about this stuff. It's already happening in America and the UK in some circumstances. So there's all these big issues. And if I think of it in a broad sense, I think the issues that touch rural Australia are almost the issues of the next century for the, for, for the world. You know, they're things like climate change. They're things like, you know, how are we going to save our topsoil and ensure that we can continue to pr produce food. They're things about population alleviation. You know, so many people live in the cities now. You can see in the COVID lockdown, Everyone's going slightly mad and suddenly yearning for more space. There are things around nature and, and what the, the intangible benefits that we get from nature. All of these things are really front and centre in rural populations. And yet the globe, you know, they are going to have a big impact on the globe for the next forever, really. But we don't think of them in rural terms and yet rural people could have a big influence and say as that kind of rusting off thing happens and as voters as as voters change what they do and I don't say you know the rusted off thing is happening in a linear fashion I think it's more it's the unpredictability about votes that's changing things and um I would keep in mind all of those issues that really affect us when, when you think about going into a voting booth next time. And when you think about engaging in your local community, I mean, so many things are happening, interesting things are happening in country towns. So I think that grassroots uh, action is really important. You, you know, I think 
there's much a much better chance of influencing things locally and for that having an effect on your local culture and that's the thing that will really change folks as well food and ag so I understand that you're writing another book that focuses on ag and food. Can you tell us a bit more about what you've learned through that research and writing process? Oh, so much. And my head's a bit of a mess on this stuff at the moment because I've just got so much going on there and chasing down lots of rabbit warrens. But basically the idea came out of the last book, Rusted Off, I think. The Rusted Off phenomenon um, really talked about what was happening in towns and there was only one chapter on agriculture in, in that book and it was largely, you know, a comment on climate change and how country politicians had failed to kind of address a lot of those issues. In my reporting and particularly around water reporting, I was noticing at elections a kind of angst and a fear around farming itself and what it what it was what what would happen to food producers i think in the last election for example 2019 election i did a lot of reporting in farrah along the murray an independent was organized in that seat um, to challenge susan lee a liberal party a liberal minister and now environment minister and I was just hearing more and more about this kind of middle group of farmers. So sort of, they, they're really, I mean, I guess they're like us. They're, they're commodity, they produce commodities. They produce food as commodity. They are subject to the markets. They're not the ones, the smaller operators who are selling into farmers markets and know the name of every single cow and every single sheep. And they're not the big, Webster's or the pension funds or the big family farms that have really kind of corporatized their structure and are working on economies of scale. They're the guys in the middle, uh, guys and, and women in the middle, um, who, who are really kind of struggling to get across all the things they need to get across in the day. And so I started looking at um, food, food and ag policy and some of those issues, we, we, uh, we had a food policy. Uh, the Abbott government, government in 2014 shut down that, um, I think it was the National Food Office. We don't have that anymore. So I was thinking about it from the farming end on the one hand and the food end on the other. And the, that middle group of farmers are really feeling squeezed between the price of inputs from the agribusiness end and the food price. And yet COVID has shown us more than ever that food is the one thing that people need and will go for every single time. And so it's interesting to me that this kind of live experiment is happening before my eyes as I write the, the manuscript that we've seen empty shelves we've never seen before. Like who knew so many people baked that, that flour wouldn't be available or pasta wouldn't be available. All the staple things that easily translate from farm gate produce into the supermarket. And so I started, you know, ferreting around down all of these lines. And, you know, basically I've discovered that the government had been warned about pandemics and the effect on supply chains, that globalisation had indeed stretched 
food miles massively and that had an effect on what would be available that the financialization of um, farming has really kind of hollowed out things and I was interested in the National Farmers I think put something out uh, around you know don't worry we've got your back we feed 75 million but pretty much that's beef and wheat I think Australia really needs a conversation around what it how diverse it wants its food industry to be, how diverse it wants its farmers to be. Do we want just some really big farmers, a few niche uh, farmers who are producing to a particular market and a kind of hollowed out middle sector? Do we want food manufacturing in this country? If you ask the economic rationalists, they would say no. I think Australians actually have shown in the last couple of months that they would be prepared to look at some more, dare I say it, interventionist policies that um, might create the diversity that they come to expect. I mean, I think in the average metropolitan person's head, they think of farmers as largely that kind of middle group. That's how they think of the Australian landscape and they think of a family farm and they think of largely a mixed farm. And if that changes rapidly in the next five to 10 years, which I think it will some sort of active policy on this stuff, I think most of Australia will wake up and go, when did that happen? <laughs> How did that happen? I didn't know that was happening. And so the book is an attempt to address what is happening in farming and to give a few options of okay we so we can keep going down this road and it will produce or it might produce this outcome or we can go down another road uh, and it might produce that outcome and you know I think of diversity in farming as diversity anything anywhere it's diversity I think is a great thing you know diversity in in cultures diversity uh, in business models that's what we want right that's what we say we want but having a lack of policy can also produce a policy outcome as much as having an active policy. And I think that's the thing that worries me most is if we never have the conversation, we end up at a very different place to what we think we're, the, the road we think we're going down. And that could be, I don't know, um, a landscape of corporate squatocracy, you know, a, a version of what we had early on in white settlement or, or, you know, it could be a more dynamic landscape. And all of these things, of course, around farming and, and agriculture and climate change will have foundational effects on our rural communities. Because if you do hollow out that middle, you hollow out the the footy coaches and the volunteers and the populations and you just have a sparsely dotted landscape where increasingly things will be done remotely. I think Australians need to think about what they want. We've talked about quite a few heavy topics today. <laughs> what, what gives you hope for the future of regional Australia? I think actually the things that give me hope are the things that freak me out as well. So with climate change, you know, since we've been having the conversation more in earnest in the last couple of years in, in, in farming and rural populations, I think there's a kind of renewed energy in uh, people who are actively and open, openly talking about climate 
change. If I think about field days I've been to over the last year, the ones with the most energy are the ones that are saying, okay, we're not going to let this beat us. We're going to, you know, whatever it is, going down a more holistic path or we're really going to change the way we do things. Uh, and they tend to be probably no accident younger generations. And they have a sort of energy that you don't get at a conventional uh, field day where, you know, you're talking yet again about, you know, what are the agronomic uh, outcomes if, if we do this in this coming drought? It's, there's this sort of dynamism, I think, that's happening. And, and there's also a kind of more complex conversation going around climate now as that is, okay, it's changing. We need to mitigate. We need to change the way we're doing things. But there might be an advantage here that we can we can use or there might be something um, something that we can change in our management structure and I think that combined with the increasing desire of some food well consumer groups eaters um, to connect with their farmer I think is really exciting because in a way you can design that system outside of outside of government policy that is you know okay if you want to support your farmer um, and you're worried about climate change, then you've got to reward the ones that are doing the good things and and seek them out. And I think that's happening right across the country. And that's, so I find that really optimistic. We mentioned at the start um, that we were going to ask for your advice for Farmers for Climate Action and Farmers. And I think you've actually given us a lot of advice throughout this interview. But I wanted to check before we wrapped up, do you have anything else? that you would say to us that we should keep in mind or well no I mean I just say to all all um, people and and groups uh, who who are concerned about rural communities and um, and getting some action on climate change is is engagement is the key and I was talking to a farmer the other day in the main street and we were talking about uh, land management and, you know, keeping ground cover and all that sort of stuff. And he said, I've decided in the next five to 10 years, I'm not going to be as silent on it as I was in the last five to 10 years. And I think that reflects the changes that are happening in rural areas. People who feel strongly about it are not going to be silent anymore. And that's what I think is going to happen. And so you know, harnessing voices is really important because the narrative tends to get, you know, when I write about stuff about climate change or I write about rusted off or something, there's always this kind of conversation. I've had this conversation with ministers as well. And, um, and that is, oh, Gabby, but you, you're, you're not the average country person. You're, you don't represent the average country person. You don't hang around with the average country person. And we say, what is the average country person? Like, why is, it, why is someone's view hold more weight than another person's view? It's, it's everyone should be involved, right? No matter, again, it comes back to diversity. So, you know, every voter gets a vote and every, every community member gets the chance to engage. And I think engaging is the key. Uh, to it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us so much time today, Gabby. That Blender. was great. 
Thank you for listening to our interview today. Don't forget to subscribe to Over the Fence and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more or getting involved with Farmers for Climate Action, you can visit our website at farmersforclimateaction.org.au. Otherwise, connect with us over social media. Catch you next time.